Have you ever found a complaint unreasonable? I don't know how many of you are customers um, and you've gone to a store and you've lodged a complaint. Maybe you're in the customer business, uh, you're in the customer service business and you're actually the person that receives the complaints. And how many of you know the old adage, the customer is always right? Like sometimes that's just not true, right? I was Googling some customer complaints and uh, I found a couple that are pretty funny. Now, fair warning to protect the innocent, I will not be divulging the business nor the customer's name, but I thought a couple of these were funny. I found one for a pizza company and it was a, it was a message chat that you could view. And the customer said this, I ordered a pizza and it came with no toppings on it. All I got was bread. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. So the pizza company responded and they said, we're so sorry to hear that. We're not sure how that might've happened. Please tell us what happened. And the customer said, never mind. I opened the pizza box upside down right? Like, that's a little silly. The customer's never always right. There's a, there's a, uh, a restaurant in England that got a customer complaint, and it was from a customer that said this, dear restaurant, the chicken in my sandwich tastes like it's been beaten to death by Hulk Hogan. Was that the case? Is that what happened to my sandwich? And the restaurant responds this way, dear customer, we're really sorry it wasn't up to scratch. We'll replace Mr. Hogan with the Ultimate Warrior on our production line immediately. Like these are unreasonable complaints, right? Um, sometimes when my wife and I are purchasing something, we like to look at the customer reviews because we, we want to see what other people are saying about the product that we are also intending to invest in. And to be honest with you, what I love looking at is I love looking at the customer complaints. Because if I can find some commonality about what other people are complaining against on a certain product, maybe there might be some validity to that. Today I want to tear uh, just a few moments with you on a complaint that was lodged against Jesus. Now, first of all, this just sounds like a bad idea, right? Who would in their right mind lodge a complaint against Jesus Christ, the Son of God? But in Luke chapter 15, this is exactly what happens. There's a group of people, you can call them the religious leaders of the day, and they came together and they had a common complaint against Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 15 and verse 1 and 2, it says this, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him, to hear him, and they're talking about Jesus. Verse 2 says, The Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. One of the chief complaints from the religious leaders of the day is, This Jesus Christ is out of control. This is what he does. He receives sinners. He welcomes them. He spends time with them. And what's more, you're not going to believe this, he eats with them. This is the complaint that was lodged against Jesus. Now, in first century Jerusalem, to share a meal with someone was pretty special. It was significant. Oftentimes, it meant you prepared all day for this gathering. And when you did have the meal, it was not rushed. It would take hours and go into the night. And it was something that was shared between family and close friends and, and people that you shared life with. That's why in the book of Acts, it's so significant that when followers of Jesus came to Christ, one of the things they decided to do is when they shared life together, they would share meals together. And the Bible talks about in Acts chapter 2 that they broke bread together. They hung out together. 
And so for Jesus to spend the time to eat with people was pretty significant. And the religious leaders of the day could not fathom that Jesus Christ would welcome sinners, that he would hang out with them, but then also he would share a meal with them. Now the complaint against Jesus was really this. Why are you hanging out with them? And it's another way of asking, and why aren't you hanging out with me? This is what the complaint was. Why would Jesus Christ, the Son of God, come to earth and not hang out with me, but hang out with sinners? And so to this complaint, Jesus responds with these three stories. These three stories are a response to his complaint. He tells them the story of the lost sheep, and, and we know this story more than the story of the lost sheep. It's a story about the good shepherd, isn't it? He goes on to tell the story about the lost coin, and, and more than the story of the lost coin, it's, it's the story of this woman who searches throughout the whole house to find the coin. And I believe in that story, it's, it's about the Holy Spirit and, and our ability to be filled with the Holy Spirit to search out people that need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he shares the story of the lost son. And we know this is the story of a father who welcomes back a son, isn't it? He's telling this story, and I want you to picture the, 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 the faces of those that are hearing this story, and they're complaining against him, saying, I don't understand how you could receive and welcome sinners. I don't understand why you can spend time with them, and I really don't understand why you would, why you would share a meal with them. This is our complaint against you. And so Jesus tells them this story, and basically what he's telling them is this. If you want to know why I do what I do, then you need to understand who I am. And he goes on to tell this story. You see, the religious leaders of the day really believed that their worth was earned. They believed that everything in their life was something to be earned. And to be honest, we're not that much different today. In our families, we earn things. In our school systems, we earn our grades. In the business world, we earn promotions. And so when we take that logic and we take that way of thinking into our relationship with God, we can fool ourselves into thinking that we earn our relationship with him. These religious leaders felt like they had earned their social status and he's hanging out with cheaters. He's hanging out with the lowest of the low. He's hanging out with thieves and with those who would take advantage in the community. He's hanging out with prostitutes. He's hanging out with them. Why isn't he hanging out with us? We've earned this right. And to be honest, they have a pretty good argument because it doesn't make sense, really. They were angry, and so Christ responds with these stories. Just for a few moments, I want to unpack the story of the lost son. The son's different because he's not a sheep. He's, he's not a beast that can be driven by instinct. He's not a coin that's inanimate, that is incapable of making decisions. The story of the lost son is different because he has a will and he has emotions and he has the ability to make decisions. One day he comes to his father and he says, Father, I'm out. I don't want to wait for you to die. I, I want my inheritance now. I, I want to I get it now so I can do what I'm going to do with it. I have plans for that money, and, and I just, I want it now. Show me the money. How many of you know that reference, by the way? I, I hope at home you know that reference, and if you don't, it's just a marker of how old I'm getting. 
But he says, Father, show me the money. Um, I want my inheritance now. And so the father obliges and gives the younger son his share of the inheritance. And depending on what translation's in front of you this morning, Luke chapter 15 and verse 13, it describes what he does with the money. This is some of the phrases you'll find in your Bible. It says this, he squandered his wealth in wild living. He wasted his possessions. He wasted his money in foolish living. He squandered his property. He wasted his substance. In other words, he lost it all. He had this fortune that was given to him prematurely at his own request, and before you knew it, it was gone. Consequently, his friends were gone as well. Those who had been along with him for the ride, those who had uh, partied with him, those who had helped him spend his money, they were gone too. As it happens, the town and the area he was living in was under a famine. And so everyone went back to their own homes. Everyone was trying to figure out how to make ends meet. And he comes to a point in his life where you know the story. Uh, There's no one left, nothing for him to do, and he needs to get a job. And he finds a job feeding pigs. He begins to work and feed the pigs, and he gets so hungry that he even considers eating what the pigs are eating. That's when he begins to write this speech in his head. And I love the imagery of what's happening here. This son who had a great situation back home, had had his inheritance gifted to him at his own request, wasted it all, and as he's feeding the pig, he begins writing the speech in his head of what he's going to tell his father one day. He thinks about the servants, and he thinks about the people that are still living with his father, and he thinks, man, they have food, they still have shelter, they still are taken care of. And he starts rehearsing the speech and writing it in his head. head. He comes to a point where he believes that his worth can be earned. And so he begins writing this speech. And he starts saying, man, I know I've screwed up. I I, I know I'm not really your son anymore. But man, uh, maybe I could work for you. And maybe I could earn back my position in the family, and maybe I can get a pain check. Look at what it says in verse 17 through 19. He says this, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out, go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He starts rehearsing this speech. He starts writing it in his head. And he starts thinking, this is what's going to earn me back a spot in my father's house. What's funny is at closer inspection, we find the son using this word worthy to describe his status with his father. The real question for you and I is, under what circumstance did he ever feel like he was worthy in the first place? What makes us think that we can affect our worthiness when it, becomes, when, it, when it comes to being a father to a son and a son to a father? You see, we are not sons and daughters by our worth. We're sons and daughters by birth. We're not sons and daughters by our worth. There's no equation where we can work enough and do enough and practice enough good deeds where we earn that position 
This is why Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus is so telling, where in John chapter 3 he says, unless someone is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. The message he was trying to tell Nicodemus is the same message that the lost son is going to soon realize. It's the same message for us, and it's the same message for the people in this community. And that is this, you do not come to God Almighty the Father by your worth, you come to him by birth. So check it out, he, he gets up, he leaves to see his father, he's practicing his speech the whole time, and this is where the story gets really good. Look at verse 20, he says this, he arose and came to his father, and when he was still a great way off, his father saw him. He had compassion on him. He ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Sometimes we... We'll read scriptures, and, and because we live in an American culture, it's really hard for us to understand the weight and the significance of Jesus telling this story in first century Jerusalem. And so I want to unpack this verse just a little bit for us this morning. I want to pull back the curtain, if you would. I want to let you in behind the scenes on what the crowd was hearing when Jesus told this story and some of the things that they were processing. Jewish families lived in small villages, and they were tightly knit communities. And so when something happened like this in a family, people found out about it really quick. The lost son, the prodigal son, he was more than trending. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter couldn't keep up with how fast this message spread in first, Jerusalem, in first century Jerusalem. The younger son demanded his inheritance. When this happened, when he demanded his inheritance and he said, I want what's mine now, such a thing was unheard of for a Jewish family. To leave your family, to, to put yourself in a position where you would leave your father, your mother, the home, it was unheard of. And so when this happened, the entire community found out about it. Here's a young Jewish man working for another family in a pig pen. I want you to think about the implications of what it was like for a Jewish person to forfeit their home in exchange for living and working in a pig pen. And that kind of situation would have, would have resonated with that crowd in a real and a palpable way. For a Jew, you can imagine the stigma. After breaking his father's heart and rules of the community, he decides to come back home. And that's when his father ran to meet him. There's a couple of reasons why this is significant. Um, we think about running, and some of you, I don't understand you, but you actually run because you enjoy it. Like, I don't get that. But in first century Jerusalem, in Middle Eastern culture, men did not run. If you do any type of reading on this, still in, in today, in, in, the, in the 21st century, it, in some areas in the Middle East, that it's still uncouth for a man to run. It wasn't proper. It was out of the ordinary. A young man growing up would not have seen their father running. So this may have been the very first time that this young man would have seen his father running as he runs towards him. I want you to think about the audience, and they're trying to process all this information. He was working where? He was working in a pig pen? His father's running now? What in the world is happening? 
There's another reason there's some significance here. The, the story says that when the prodigal was a great way off, the father saw him and ran towards him. You see, first century Jewish culture had a custom that dictated if you had an offense against your family, if you had a son that committed this type of offense in your family, they were cut off from the family. They didn't have a standing in the family anymore. They would have a ceremony called the kazaza. That word kazaza literally means the the cutting off, and after it was performed, the community would have nothing to do with this wayward person. By selling his inheritance, by leaving his family, by going to work in a pig pen, by cutting himself off from his family, the community then would cut this person off from ever being able to return. He had no more rights to claim. He was no longer a member of this family, and he was no longer a member of this community. So what would happen is this. When a member of the community that had left like this under very unsavory conditions tried to return back to the community, the town, literally the town would line up at the border of the town. They would grab these clay pots, and upon seeing someone trying to return back into the community, into the community, they would take these clay pots, and they would crash them at their feet. And the clay pots breaking apart in those cut pieces represented the fact that you are cut off. We no longer recognize you as a member of this family. We no longer recognize you as a member of this community. You are cut off. And the sound of the clay pots hitting the ground would be a sound, would be a signal to the person thinking about returning that there's no way you can return. The kazasa. The, the, the ceremony of shame, the cutting off ceremony is in place and, and you're cut off. I want you to think about the family and, and I want you to think about the father that, that sees his son coming at a distance. I want you to think about the audience thinking about, here's this young man, he gave up his inheritance, he took it early, he, he, he lost it all, he works in a pig pen and now he thinks he gets to come back? Doesn't he know that we cut him off? And there's this father, and he's standing at the edge of the city, and he's looking afar off, and he sees his son starting to come back. This is why he ran. I want you to think about the picture of the father. He runs towards his son. And as he runs towards the son, he runs past the crowd of people waiting to judge that son. He's saying, I have to get to my son with love before the rest of them get him with judgment. I have to run past him. I have to, I have to get to him with love. I have to get to him with acceptance. I am running to meet him before the ceremony of shame can take place. If a wayward person got within throwing distance, it was common knowledge that they would be stoned to death before they ever returned into the city. And so the father ran. He ran past them in order to meet his son. His father said to himself, I got to get to them with love before they get to him with law. I've got to get to him with grace before they get to him with judgment. So the father runs. 
And just quickly, he starts giving him gifts. And I want to, th- I want to talk to you about these gifts, and then we're going to pray. But he, talks, he, he starts giving him these gifts. Look at verse 21. He says this, The father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. The gift of the robe. I'm going to be honest. Can you smell what this guy, can you think about what this guy smelled like right now? He just spent time feeding pigs in a pigsty, thinking about eating the food. He's just traveled all this way back home. And his father, without even thinking, says, hey, go get the robe. Go get the robe. I know what he smells like. Don't worry about that. Go get the robe because we're going to cover him now with the robe. Can you identify him with him? The mistakes that we've made, the guilt and the shame that we've made kind of stay on our body and they, they kind of give out an aroma of failure, an aroma of shame. And yet the good news is God covers our sinfulness in the robe of Christ's righteousness. Second Corinthians says God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, the robe covers his past, his transgressions, his mistake, his selfishness, his stink. That's what the robe does. The gift of the robe says this, you're covered. Verse 22 says this, the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, and then put a ring on his finger. You see, the ring was a family heirloom, a signet ring used in transaction business for the New Testament. So when you place that ring on some wax, it was equal to a signature. And someone who had the ring who could affix their their signature on documents was someone who had the authority to do business on behalf of the family. You see, just when the son thought he was no longer worthy of representing the family name, the father says, hey, you're, you're restored. You're authorized. You, you get to do business on my behalf now. You see, God does not ever partially restore us. He recommissions us and gives us back full authority to do business in his name. And just when you thought you couldn't represent the name of Christ, the father comes and says, hey, let's get a ring on that finger. The gift of the robe says, man, you're covered. The gift of the ring says, you're restored. Verse 22 says this, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. The son had his speech all ready to go. He's been walking all this way. He's been barefoot this whole time. And he's ready to tell his father, I'm no longer worthy to be a son, so this is what I'll do, Dad. I'll just work for you. I'll I'll be one of your servants. Let me earn my keep. In those days, hired servants didn't wear shoes. You had to be a part of the family to wear a shoe. Only sons and daughters wore shoes. You see, the, the father gave him the full rights of being a child of the father. The gift of the robe says, man, you're covered. The gift of the ring says you are fully restored. The gift of the sandals is a gift that says this, you are a son and you're loved. 
you're covered, you're restored, and you're loved. So now, now when he walks back to the gate, again, picture the father has run past the, the crowd of people ready to judge. He's put a robe on his son to cover him up. He has put a ring on his finger to identify him as fully restored in the family. He's put Feet, uh, shoes on his feet so that people know when he walked back into town with his arm around his son that it was not a servant that was coming back into the home. It was a son. And so he comes back in. And this time the clay pots drop from their hands, not of anger, not out of a ceremony of shame, but in a celebration that a son has come home. You get to verse 23, or verse 22 and 23, it says this, Bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, and then verse 23, bring the fattened calf, and let's have a feast and celebrate. Now, I'm going to be fully honest with you, man. I was born in India, but I was raised in Southern California. I'm a city boy, so I don't understand anything about raising calf. I will tell you something I can deduce, though. A fattened calf doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes time for that calf to be fattened in order to, to, to have it be described as fattened. It takes time. And what that tells me and what I think it tells us this morning is this. He kept feeding this calf and got it ready for a celebration because he was waiting for his son to get back. The gift of the celebration says this, you're wanted when you were thinking of him, when, 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 when he was thinking of his son, and even though the son wasn't thinking about his father until the bottom fell out on his life, you, the father was telling him, you're not cut off. You're not beyond repair. I've been waiting for you. You're covered. You're restored. You're loved. You're wanted. This is the message, I believe, this valley needs to hear that they are covered, that they're restored, that they're loved, and that they're wanted. All across this community in the Willamette Valley, I think people are perhaps reluctant to come to a Savior because they know what it's like to, to carry a little stink with them. They know what it's like to carry a little shame and a little regret. And some people are worried about coming back to the Savior. They're worried about coming and being part of a church community because they recognize the guilt and they recognize that judgment might come. And what I want to tell you this morning is this needs to be a church that runs way past the judgment and runs to people in love and runs to people in grace and tells them that there's a Savior that tells them that they're covered, that no matter what they're bringing to the table, whatever stink they think they have, the forgiveness of Jesus Christ is enough, and they're covered. They're waiting to hear the message that they are, uh, that they are restored, that they have full rights uh, in the kingdom of God. And when they thought they couldn't do anything for the cause of Christ, this is the moment where God is going to empower them to do business on his behalf. They're waiting for a community to, for, for, for a church community to embrace them and tell them, man, you're loved, you're part of the family. And you're wanted. You're restored. You're loved. You're wanted. You're covered. If you're listening to this and, and maybe you've never made a decision for Christ, Man, this is my encouragement to you. 
Can I tell you, and I'll just be honest with you, as a person that was in the pig pen of my life, there was a moment where I uh, retold the speech in my head, and I remember what I was going to tell to my family. I remember what I was going to tell to God Almighty. What's interesting in this story is this. The son never had a chance to tell the father the speech he had rehearsed. Because God's grace and his love is so quick that at the moment you come to him, he's been waiting the whole time. Let me pray for you this morning. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much for covering our sins with your sacrifice. I want to thank you so much for restoring us back into the service for the king. I want to thank you for loving us when we were incapable of knowing what love was. Thank you for wanting us when we were so far away. Father, my prayer for this church is that this message would spread far beyond these walls into a community ready to hear the gospel. Father, may God bless the days ahead of this church in this valley. In Jesus' precious and holy name, amen.